It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. the COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We've got a good show in store today coming up in the uh, third half of our three-hour tour. We're going to talk with... um, uh, Shoot, I'm looking right at my notes, and... uh, Oh, it's Eve Golden. I'm so sorry. I, I... fumbled that a little bit. Um, She's the author of a new book about Jane Mansfield called The Girl Couldn't Help It. And uh, we're going to talk with the founder and CEO of um, uh, an organization who has uh, written a book called uh, The Audacity to be Divine. Judith Halbrick is uh, joining us in the second hour. But first, um, and and really appropriately timed with uh, Passover beginning at sundown tomorrow, um, we're going to talk with uh, Miriam Udell, a rabbi, mother, professor of Yiddish language and literature at Emory University and the author of a new book called Honey on the Page, A Treasury of Yiddish Children's Literature. Miriam joins me by phone. Hi, Miriam. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I'm 
curious about this. I was reading something about the uh, about the book, the collection, and it it was called an unprecedented collection of nearly fifty traditional Yiddish stories and rhymes for youngsters, translated into English. Are these stories much different than the the stories that we've told children in other languages and cultures? Well, yes and no. Um, some of them are fairy tales, folk tales, allegories, the kinds of stories that we find parallels to in lots of other cultures. Um, some of them have to do with Jewish holidays and history in particular, but all of them are really shaped by the time and places in which they were composed, which is mostly the early decades of the 20th century. Some of them are from after World War II, the, the mid-century mid period. Um, but they have to do with a, a very particular range of concerns about how to, how to raise good kids. And so these are, are stories with, uh, with morals. They are. They are teaching lessons, um, many of which I think are pretty universal. I think they're things that we would all want to cultivate in our children, like generosity and um, fellow feeling with other people, solidarity. Sometimes those universal lessons also take on a particular kind of political character where where those ways of being get played out as political views. So if you're very concerned about um, generosity, then that might point toward a certain kind of political commitment. So we really see a range in these stories from um, tales that could speak to anyone to tales that come out of a particular kind of leftist, very modern political moment. Now these stories... Uh come from about a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. um, are, are the themes much different for parents and children today than they were a hundred years ago? So, to be perfectly honest with you, Tom, I wish that some of them were more different because a lot of these stories are are terribly relevant to um, to our lives today, having to do with um, the gap between haves and have-nots, um, economic injustice, um, the struggle to create more just societies, the struggle to um, to learn to live with people who are are different from one's own background. Um, that's that's part of these stories, and um, there are even there's even a story about a pandemic in here and a child who is unfortunately orphaned by losing her, her parents in a pandemic. So a lot of the themes from that from that time really speak to our time. Um, and these are all translated from Yiddish, and and this may be kind of a naive question, but is Yiddish spoken still? No, that's a great question. So Yiddish is the daily language, the sort of primary daily language for somewhere between half a million and a million Hasidic Jews all over the world. And it's a, what I might call a sort of a love language, a, a language of 
um, enthusiasm and engagement for not quite as large a number of um, of non-Hasidic Jews and other speakers, not all of the people who've, who've come to Yiddish and learned it are in fact Jewish, um, but all over the world. It's a language that unites enthusiasts who still love the literature, the music, the, the cuisine, um, all of the different domains of, of a culture exist in Yiddish and are flourishing today. Is it uh, similar or connected in any way to Hebrew? Yiddish is a fusion language that combines vocabulary from German, from Middle High German, Hebrew, the Slavic languages like Russian and Polish, and a little bit from, from Latin. It mixes all of those together, and then when it gets written down, it's written in Hebrew characters. Okay. Um is so it it is still spoken today in some places it it is still spoken um there's not really anybody left at this point who conducts their lives exclusively in yiddish it tends to um be a language that people know and use alongside other languages but for the people who do use it regularly it signifies home and familiarity and um, a, a sense of, of being among one's fellows and one's intimates. Um, so it's, it's a very important kind of language for the heart. That's why I call it a love language. And does that inform the title of the book in some way, Honey on the Page? Honey on the Page, yes. So... That alludes to a custom that existed um, going back, you know, more than 100 years to the informal schools that um, little Jewish kids used to attend back in Europe. Um, and to say school is really overselling it because it was typically just a room in the teacher's home and the, the teacher would have been a rabbi. And the custom, which was carried over to um, to the United States and other places where there were more formal schools, was that on the first day of class, the teacher would smear a dollop of honey on the first page of every student's alphabet primer. And the student would lick up that honey in order to make all of the future learning sweet. And I wanted to do something similar with this book for kids in this generation to make learning about Jewish culture sweet for them. And is Jewish culture different today, or is it practiced differently in, in different countries, um, or are, are things pretty much the same as far as uh, um, how it's practiced in temple? Well, certain things remain very very similar or very much the same. So a lot of the prayers, um, the, the ritual that Jews all over the world will be enacting tomorrow night as we hold a first Seder, that has been set into place for hundreds of years, and not everybody will say exactly the same 
words and, and follow it as written in the traditional book for the Seder, the Haggadah, but many people will. And those who depart from the precise traditional words will still be doing so in a very traditional way. And they'll have certain, um, certain parts of the ritual that they will still follow, like eating matzah and talking about the exodus from Egypt. And then there's also constant innovation and change that's taking place because this is a really ancient tradition that every generation has to figure out how they're going to keep it relevant, how they are going to make sure that it's still speaking to them and to their children. And that has been the constant challenge of Jewish life over thousands of years. And these stories that I've translated are part of that same effort to take the old lessons and to make them relevant for new generations. Is is that kind of a challenge, relevance in an ever-changing world? Well, I think so. When when you're saying words that you didn't write and that have been written, you know, hundreds of years ago, sometimes there's a, a struggle to have those words speak to us today. But the more we're able to delve into our traditions and be honest about the ways that they they do and don't seem to speak to us, the more meaning we can actually extract from them so that so that I think they do really stay relevant and give us a lens for looking at the world for you know we we have the exodus story about um, being enslaved and through the help of a, a mighty God with an outstretched arm being able to leave servitude and experience liberation. And that's a really powerful story even today. And and relevant to a, a lot of non-Jewish people as well. Absolutely. That's right. I think, you know, the more we, we come to know each other's cultures and stories, um, the more human fellowship we can really experience because we see that Certain things are universal, and the things that are are different are also important to know about because we can we can experience both empathy for you know what we have felt ourselves and sympathy for all of the struggles that the different peoples and different parts of of our of our collective are going through or have gone through. Um. My my guest is uh, Miriam Udell, a rabbi, mother, professor of Yiddish language and literature at Emory University, and the author of a new book, "Honey on the Page," and uh, it's um, a treasury of uh, Yiddish children's literature. And we're going to talk some more with uh, Miriam. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more in the next uh, segment? Of course, all the Passover cooking can wait for a few more minutes. <laughs> you start that today and not tomorrow? Oh, we started that. <laughs> we started that <laughs> days well, ago. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we will be back with more with uh, Miriam Udell after we let our uh, broadcast partner squeeze in a few words. 
N O I dare everybody, it's me, Tigger. T I double R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. 
and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. Uh, We're going to continue my conversation with Rabbi Mother, professor of Yiddish language and literature at Emory University and author of a new book, Honey on the Page, a Treasury of Yiddish Children's Literature, Miriam Udell. And Miriam, welcome back, and thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. (laughs) No, it's it's a pleasure to hear all of the people you've had on your show, Tom. (laughs) Um, And you said just before the break that you were... uh, taking a break from uh, your your food prep for tomorrow which uh, is uh, Passover beginning at sundown tomorrow um, and and I don't want to turn this into a cooking show but what kinds of things are you in the <laughs> middle of uh, preparing well let's see yesterday I got the potato kugel that's a sort of potato pudding done along with a meatloaf and the haroset which is the sweet apple and nut mixture that is supposed to remind us of the the mortar that went between the bricks when the Israelites were slaves. So that's one of the ritual foods that we enjoy at the Seder. And today I am going to tackle um, roasting a chicken, that's pretty easy, and the baking, which um, we, we like our dessert on Passover, but we don't use any flour or yeast. So we do a lot of um, of beating of eggs and, and getting some volume and aeration with stiffened egg whites. So that's um, that's what I'll be doing, you know, after we talk. A little baking. <laughs> well, it sounds wonderful. The um, Now, the book is a way to pass down and, and preserve jewish identity by by retelling these old stories translating them from yiddish to english um in an increasingly secularized culture um you know i hear all the time from priests and ministers about people that have turned away from the church um as a rabbi, are you experiencing that at all in the in the Jewish faith, um, especially here in the U.S.? So here is the interesting thing I think about um, about the stories in Honey on the Page. As I said, these were written most of them between eighty and a hundred years ago by people who considered themselves secular. They considered themselves the vanguard of the left of modernity. They were not religious in the traditional stamp of their parents and grandparents. And yet, it was important for many of them to write stories about the Jewish holidays, about the events of Jewish history. And even those who happened to write in Yiddish, because it was their mother tongue, but who wrote stories with very little Jewish content, still often wrote in a way that was culturally Jewish. And now, fast forward 100 years, and of course, the processes of secularization continue, um, and, you know, communities are, are always 
changing. And in America, the story is one of acculturation and people of different kinds of backgrounds, whether they are faith backgrounds or ethnic backgrounds, mixing together socially and familially. But this is also, we're really living through a moment of um, people going back and reclaiming some of what might have been lost in their own families. And so there is a lot of curiosity among young Jews about all aspects of Jewish culture and religion. There's a, there's a kind of a cultural revival going on that also has spiritual elements. And I think that this work is also part of that because in some way these stories are a roadmap for how you can still think Jewish and do Jewish even if you already understand yourself to be pretty fully secularized. Is secular is secularizing something that happens, uh, I don't even know if that's a word, but is that something that happens or has been happening throughout history from generation to generation? Well, it's becoming, you know, more more secular in the sense of turning toward a civil society rather than religious authorities um, as the, the kind of central organizing principle of life. That's something that definitely accelerated um, after the Enlightenment in Europe and has picked up energy over the last two decades for all kinds of reasons that, you know, a historian could probably address even better than I could. But um, I think, you know, let me, let me give you an example of, of what I'm talking about. Yeah, please. The, the first couple of stories in the book are uh, about the observance of the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest that happens every Friday night, at sundown until Saturday night at sundown. And one of them is called The Sabbath in the Forest. The other one is called The Magic Lion. And these are two stories that really celebrate observing the Sabbath in a very traditional way. And they were both written by leftists. One, was, one of the authors was a cultural Zionist, um, and the other one was a socialist um, of the kind called a Bundist, who who believed that you know the the best possible future for the Jewish people would be when Jews united with all of the other workers of the world to bring about the the workers' revolution. And so neither one of them was necessarily a personal observer of the Sabbath. They wrote these stories for school children whose families no longer observe the Sabbath, yet these stories place at their center the experience of somebody in a vulnerable, unusual circumstance away from home, outside of the normal bounds of community, who decides to stop whatever he's doing while traveling, um, while exposed. One of them is in the blizzard in a forest. The other one is in the desert where it's very hot. And when, when Friday night comes, they stop everything and they observe the Sabbath in a very traditional way. Now, why did these 
authors who, who didn't themselves observe the Sabbath, why did they write stories about this? Well, I think that there is a sort of a convergence point where the very traditional meets the very modern. They were both leftists who wanted to uphold the, the rights of the worker, and they wanted to tell stories about the worker being able to claim a portion of his own time, um, one-seventh of his time. Because if you say that you're observing the, the Sabbath and that that time belongs to God, then it doesn't belong to your boss. So as I say, there's a kind of convergence between the very old and the very new that we see in, in some of these stories. You know, it's it's interesting. You talk about uh, um, some of these uh, Jews advocating for um, combining with other groups, um, you know, in in search and support of freedom. Um, isn't one of the reasons that we? Well, I, let me put this a different way. Isn't um, Judaism, one of the oldest religions and cultures that's still around. It is. It, it's really quite ancient, and we can trace through lines, you know, that ancient Hebrew, the Hebrew of the Bible, is intelligible to speakers of modern Hebrew. There are a few interesting differences, but there is absolutely a sense of continuity because it is so ancient and that's why the work that I'm describing of you know how you take those very ancient sources and practices and breathe new life into them breathe new life into the old stories and make them feel compelling to a new generation that's exactly why that work is so important and isn't one of the reasons that uh that Judaism is still around um, because Jewish people historically were reluctant um, to intermarry, for example. Yes. So for a long time, there wasn't really um, there wasn't a widespread question about intermarriage because, for example. Um, the place with the largest Jewish population back in Europe before the great global migrations to to America and to what is now the land of to the state of Israel, um, the Pale of Settlement in Russia. Jews were not permitted to to intermarry. Nobody could marry across the lines of their confession or their faith. Um, you know, Russian Orthodox Christians needed to marry other Russian Orthodox Christians by law. Muslims needed to marry Muslims. Jews needed to marry Jews. And the only way to marry across those lines was for one of the members of the couple to convert. And it also was not permissible for the majority religion, Russian Orthodox Christians, to convert away from their faith in order to marry into one of the minority faiths. So when you have that kind of, you know, strict rule operating 
at the level of the state, the question is not going to arise for most people. We're not talking about a very open society. But then when we get to the United States, to, you know, the modern West, to Western Europe, um, some other very, you know, places that really embraced open societies and modernity um, early, things are very different because in the United States you can marry whomever you want. And I think that one of the challenges for the community today is figuring out how to welcome and support interfaith couples on their spiritual journeys and how to make sure that they still have access to the Jewish dimensions of those journeys. Are they are those dimensions similar enough that um, that there aren't conflicts for children raised by mixed couples? Well, this is getting a little bit outside of my area of expertise, um, so I, I don't know how well I can speak to it, but just from my own reading and teaching about 20th century Jewish life, particularly in America, I know that there have been conflicts for kids um, who need to work through all different kinds of potential family configurations. I think that does kind of go along with living in an open society. There are all sorts of challenges that, that people face. Um, but challenges don't necessarily mean problems, right? It's not necessarily <laughs> Good <the case> point. <laughs> that, <laughs> that something is wrong just because people are, are facing challenges. Well, and that's why I asked the question the way I did. If, you know, we hear a lot in as people talk about American values as being Judeo-Christian. And I asked intentionally if there were enough similarities that it, if, if there are challenges, they're not insurmountable um, for children, you know, raised in... Uh, a, a more modern uh, configuration of a family. Right. But, I mean, I think this is this is something that a lot of individual families are have been working out for themselves over the past couple of generations um, since intermarriage really um, became a more widespread practice starting in the 1960s or 70s. And I think that we're just beginning to see more institutional approaches and more institutional thinking and support for couples who are navigating those those challenges. Um, let's let's get back to some of the lessons uh, contained in the stories that are included in your new book, Honey on the Page. Um, these are traditional Yiddish stories from over a hundred years ago that have been translated from Yiddish into English. Um, are there subjects discussed um, in those stories that, that would surprise us or things that haven't been talked about for a long time? I think so. Um, let me try to come up with a quick example for you. Um, after World War II, there were a lot of holiday stories 
that were told. I think that after the Holocaust, there was a powerful sense that so much of the natural readership for these stories had been lost, had been killed in the war. And there was a really strong desire on the part of these Yiddish writers to make sure that the Jewish children who remained, even if they were going to be more secular, knew about the themes and motifs and stories associated with each of the Jewish holidays. And so we have a lot of, we see a lot of the publishing activity shift from Eastern Europe to Latin America after the war, where a lot of survivors um, settled. And there's an author named Sina Rabinovich who wrote a beautiful collection of holiday tales in, in the 1950s. And one of the things that's kind of surprising is the settings of some of these tales. One of them is, takes place in Casablanca, Morocco, which is not necessarily a place where we would think about a Yiddish story being set. And that one, I alluded to before, it describes the experience of a little girl who is orphaned by a pandemic. She loses both of her parents and is brought by um, an Arab worker who, who finds her. Um, she's brought to a Jewish orphanage in Casablanca and taken into the orphanage, and she has been so traumatized by the sudden loss of both parents that she's unable to speak for most of the story. And we learn about how she regains her voice and there is another story from that collection by Tzina Rapinovich that is set in the Jewish community in Trinidad. And it talks about the relationship between a very, very old community that came over to Trinidad seeking refuge during the Spanish Inquisition, Jews that had come from Spain and eventually intermarried with the, the natives and the Catholics who were present on the island, um, and the way that that community ends up relating to a much newer community of Jews fleeing the Holocaust, who also settle in, in Trinidad. So I think that, you know, those kinds of settings are a little bit surprising. It might not be I was surprised. Kind of, I was surprised yeah. by the fact that um, an Arab took this uh, Jewish girl in. I, I can't think of... A, a, a lot of stories until fairly recently that involved um, Jews and Arabs together. That's right, and that I think that is just part of what naturally comes from this setting in Casablanca, because we're talking about a tiny Jewish community surrounded by a majority of of Muslims, and um, it is absolutely a compassionate act that this man tries to save the girl and kind of bring her to what he understands to be her her community. And and there are 50 of these stories. How did you pick this particular batch of stories? That is a great question and that was so much of the work. Um, I, like <laughs> I would think that I've <laughs> I, I I like to joke that I've read more bad Yiddish children's literature than anyone else <laughs> currently alive. Um, there, there are stories that did not, did not pass the test of time. 
um, either because they just weren't interesting enough or because they were not really in keeping with our our own sensibilities about you know how we talk about women and girls perhaps or um, you know things like that um, but I knew that I wanted to create a collection that would not only be interesting to scholars of, of children's literature or of Jewish history, but something that would really be a resource and a companion for people who are curious about Jewish culture and for children who want to learn about the Jewish community today. Um, and so in order to, to do that, I needed to represent all kinds of diversity. These stories were published on four different continents. Some of the authors were the biggest names in Yiddish literature of the 20th century, and some of them were relatively unknown because they were teachers or school administrators who spent most of their time with children and really knew children's minds and hearts. Um, so I wanted to, to represent that you know, range and also to have as many women represented in the table of contents as possible to represent the ideological diversity of, of these stories and also the artistic choices that people made about how to tell stories for children because some of them are very whimsical and fanciful and imaginative, you know, like the fairy tales that we know, and some of them are much more realistically drawn and so i wanted to show all of that in this collection well i uh we're we're almost out of time miriam and i, I feel like we could talk about this for much much longer and i would enjoy that as i've enjoyed this uh last bit of time um but i you know i want to let you get back to your baking um <laughs> is there an appropriate um greeting or or wish that people share with each other uh, for Passover? There are a few different ones, but um, one classic that we can go with in, in Yiddish is to say a kosheren unazisen Pesach, which means that you wish somebody a kosher and a sweet Passover. We, we undertake a lot of work to... Um, rid our homes of any sort of leavened matter, whether it's bread, cereal, pasta, crackers. And we think that this also um, speaks to a spiritual practice of ridding our hearts of the, the leavening material of, of arrogance. Um, and so we try to get rid of all of that before Passover. And, of course, we want it to be a sweet holiday as well. Well, I, I wish all of that to you and, uh, and, and to all of our uh, Jewish listeners. Um, we just have literally one minute left, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, the book, and, and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Sure, so you can, I do. I have a website. It's miriamudel.com, M-I-R-I-A-M-U-D-E-L. And that has links to purchase the book pretty much anywhere that books are sold. Well, Miriam, thank you so much for uh, taking time out from your baking to spend with me this morning. <laughs> it was a delightful way to pass the time. Thank you, Tom. Take care. 
Uh, Miriam uh, Udall is a uh, rabbi, mother, professor of Yiddish language and literature at Emory University and the author of a new book, Honey on the Page. Um, it's uh, a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. 
The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. sit together watching tv every single night munching popcorn from a dish while observing dorothy gish dorothy gish dorothy gish what a dish what a dish alan yetta couldn't have it better their tv set has remote control so they both can stay in bed with frankenstein and mr ed mr ed stay in bed what a dish. Oh. Alan Yetta, fans of Art Linkletta, and they love to sing along with Mitch. They just found in TV Guide reruns of December Bride. December Bride. TV Guide. Mr. Ed. Stay in bed. What a dish. Oh. They're big fans of Gunsmoke and Bonanza, and Ben Casey and Dr. Jim Kildare. And third reruns of Millionaire and fourth reruns of Yogi Bear. Millionaire, Yogi Bear, December Bride, TV Guide, Mr. Ed, Stay in Bed, What a Dish, What a Dish. Oh. Alan Yetta loved to watch Loretta when she enters through her fancy door. They just love the real McCoys, Walter Cronkite and the Bowery Boys. Bowery Boys, Real McCoys, Yogi Bear, TV Guide, Stay in Bed, What a Dish. Al got wrinkly watching Huntley Brinkley and College Bowl on Sunday afternoons. While they both watch Meet the Press, Yetta yearns for Elliot Ness. Meet the Press, Real McCoys, Yogi Bear, TV Guide, Stay in Bed. What a dish. Oh. Alan Yetta watched an operetta. Leonard Bernstein told them what they saw. They both shouted, Hail Bernstein. Then they switched to What's My Line? What's My Line? Meet the Press. Real McCoys. Yogi Bear. TV Guide. Stay in bed. What a dish. Yetta, something that upset her. He said, dear, our picture tube has blown. Yetta answered, woe is me, for tonight we shall not see. What's my line? Meet the press. Real McCoys. Yogi Bear. TV Guide. Stay in bed. What a dish. 
When Benjamin Disraeli was Prime Minister of England And good old Queen Victoria was the Queen Whenever she would need him for official palace business Disraeli, he was nowhere to be seen She went down to 10 Downing Street The doorbell there she rang And when there was no answer This is what the good queen sang Won't you come home, Disraeli? Won't you come home? Come home to Queen Victoria. Don't leave that House of Commons and that House of Lords. Just sitting waiting for ya. I'm getting awful lonesome, cause all I do is sit here reading Ethan Frome. Now don't leave me flat. The key to the palace is under the mat. Disraeli, won't you please come home? Come home, Disraeli, I want you come home. Come home to Queen Victoria. Don't leave that House of Commons and that House of Lords. Just sitting waiting for ya. You claim official business took you away to Egypt and Bombay and Rome. Well, I ain't so certain. Cause you're the 19th century Richard Burton Disraeli Won't you please I miss you Dizzy Disraeli won't you please Disraeli won't you please Disraeli won't you please Come home She wheels her wheelbarrow Through streets that are narrow her barrow is narrow, her hips are too wide. So wherever she wheels it, the neighborhood feels it. Her girdle keeps scraping the homes on each side. In Dublin's fair city, where girls are so pretty, my Molly stands out cause she weighs 18 stone. It's 256 pounds. <laughs> I don't mind her fat, but... <laughs> it's not only that, but... She's cockeyed and muscle-bound, Molly Malone. Oh, a man, his name is Lang, and he has a neon sign. And Mr. Lang is very old, so they call it Old Lang Sign. Oh, what have you done, Billy Sal, Billy Sal? Oh, what have you done, 
charming Billy. You took almost every cent from the U.S. government, which you spent on fertilizer, which is silly. All day, all night, Cary Grant. That's all I hear from my wife is Cary Grant. What can he do that I can't? Big deal, big star, Cary Grant. Oh, the moon is bright tonight upon the car wash. So I'm having my Volkswagen washed again. But the way things go with me, the way my luck runs, just as soon as they're finished, it will rain. On top of old Smokey, all covered with hair. Of course, I'm referring to Smokey the Bear. Here's a famous old folk song that you all know entitled Aura Lee. Every time you take vaccine, take it orally. As you know, the other way is more painfully. My grandfather's clock was the best ever made by the Timex company. Just like the clock John Cameron Swayze displayed last night on the old TV. Oh, it works underwater so perfectly, and it still makes a ticking sound, which my grandfather tried only this afternoon, and that's how the old man drowned. Do not make a stingy sandwich pile the cold cuts high. Customers should see salami coming through the right. Oh, I diet all day and I diet all night. It's enough to drive me bats. Got no gravy or potatoes, cause the whole refrigerator's full of polyunsaturated fats. Fairly well, Metrical, and the others of that ilk. Let the diet start tomorrow, cause today I'll drown my sorrow in a double malted milk. When you go to the delicatessen star, don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. I repeat what I just said before. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Oh, buy the corned beef if you must. The pickled herring you can trust. And the locks puts you in orbit. A-OK. -okay. But that big hunk of liverwurst has been there since October 1st. And today is the 23rd of May. So when you go to the delicatessen star, don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. It'll make your insides awful sore. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Thank <laughs> you.
offers another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. You pilots, get off of my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. 